So we're going to be looking at Daniel today. And the reason I think Daniel's significant for us is because Daniel is, and his friends represent for us what it's like to live in an environment where, where everything around you is trying to discourage you or at least not support you as you try to live a life of faithfulness. Sometimes there's open hostility. We looked a little bit of that in the, in the life of Elijah a couple of weeks ago. But sometimes we just live in an environment where they, they just don't care. And, they, and, 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 and sometimes where they're even hostile. And, and so we, we go through this movement where there's a tremendous pressure for us to compromise, to somehow to fit in, to, to not you know, get, get too far along. And, and Daniel is this wonderful picture for us about what does it really take to live with faithfulness in an environment that is constantly asking us to compromise what really matters in our spiritual journey. Now, before we read Daniel 1, I need to give you a little historical context. I think it makes what we're going to look at just a little bit more significant. Um, Daniel grew up in really tumultuous times. In some ways, it was a great time. Daniel lived and and was born and and raised up in Jerusalem, in the area, in the nation of Judah, in a time when it was experiencing tremendous spiritual revival. King Josiah, who we're going to look at in a couple of weeks, had found the book of the law inside of the temple, and they were making all these reforms, and they were reforming the temple and getting the, getting the spiritual life of the nation going again. At the same time, there are, there are just huge transitions going on, going on internationally. For a long period of time, the nation of Assyria had been the dominant world power. They were the superpower in the world. They were the nation that was responsible for, for um, sending the, Is- the northern kingdom of Israel into exile. You know, the, the Assyrians came down and conquered the ten northern tribes that were known as the nation of Israel and deported them, and they were never to be seen again. The, so down in the southern part, below Judah, was the nation of Egypt. They had been, if you will, minor partners in an alliance with the Assyrians for a long time. And as the Assyrians began to, f- their their power began to fade, the, Egypt became more of an eagle, e- equal partner with them, and, and they were trying to support the Assyrians so that the Babylonians, who were the new emerging power that were going on, wouldn't come trepsing down through Judah, down through Palestine, and into Egypt and take them over. So they were trying to get the Assyrians to fight the Babylonians on their own turf, if you will. So if you want to think about it geographically, if, if this is the, Mediter- the eastern part of the Mediterranean, so you have Judah in here, up here is the nation of Assyria, down here is Egypt, and over here is the nation of Babylon. So when Babylon is the rising superpower, right? Kind of like, let's go back to our the revolutionary days, right? We just got did July 4th. You know, England has kind of fallen. The United States is kind of rising, right? You know, and that specifically happened significantly in the 20th century where we became this world power. The same kind of transition's going on. So the, the the, the Assyrians have already been forced to move their capital three times. They've moved from Nineveh to Haran. Now they're in Carchemish. And so there's time for the, 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 the Babylonians have said, you know what, it's time for us to be in charge. So this guy who was the king of Babylonia sends his son. The, the, the king, his name is Nebo-Palassar. I, I dare any of you to name one of your kids Nebo-Palassar, right? And he sends his son Nebuchadnezzar, at the head of an army of 18,000 people to confront the Assyrians. The Egyptians try to have the battle take place north, not south, so they come marching through Palestine. 
to make their way up to join the Assyrians to try to resist the Babylonians at Carchemish. While they're en route, this new pharaoh, Necho, another interesting name, right? His name is Necho, N-E-C-C-O. It always reminds me of the candy, right? You know, and um, so he's, mar- he's marching his troop up along the coast, and as he gets into the area of Palestine, he's trying to cut across the Jezreel Valley through a, through a pass that's right around the city of Megiddo. We get that connection to the area of Armageddon, right? We know the story of Armageddon, etc. That, that's in, in the book of Revelation. That, it's the same kind of pass. That's the imagery that's used there. And Josiah, who has had just tremendous blessings of God poured out upon him because of the spiritual revival that's taken place, kind of takes it upon himself to confront the, 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 the Egyptians. He's like, you know what? You know, we're, we're getting stronger. God's been blessing us or whatever. This is a chance for us to flex our muscles and show ourselves as this big international power. And so without the leadership of God, he leads his army out to confront the Egyptians in the past that's around Megiddo. And they lose. You know, Necho says, you know, I don't really have a quarrel for you. Just go back to Judah. We just want to march through and fight to the north. And Josiah says, you're not going through our territory. There's a huge battle. Josiah gets shot with an arrow is dying. They transfer him to a different chariot. They run him back to Judah, uh, back to Jerusalem, and he dies. And, his, and Jehoiakim becomes the king in his place. Necho goes on up. He joins with the Assyrians. They have this battle that goes on, right? All this is going to lead somewhere, okay? So just hang with me, right? So in 605 B.C., even though they have 40,000 men, they lose to the army of Nebuchadnezzar with 18,000. They get destroyed at the Battle of Carchemish. Nebuchadnezzar says, you know what, we're already over here. We're almost, you know, 900 miles from home. We might as well just march down and conquer Judah while we're here. And so they march down to Jerusalem, and they surround the city. They lay siege to it, and they're successful. Jehoiakim, their king, is deposed, and he's out of the picture. Nebuchadnezzar sets up a puppet king. Somebody's going to do what he tells him to do. His name is Jehoiachin. Sounds a lot the same, but it's actually different. Jehoiakim and Jehoiachin. And so he sets him up as the throne. And then they also decide that they're going to plunder the city, which they do. And they take a number of young nobles back with them. In other words, all these leading families of Jerusalem and Judah, they take their sons, their young adult sons, and they take it with them. Most likely they were like 13, 14 years old, 15 years old. We're talking about... 7th, 8th, ninth graders, right? They, they say, we're taking your kids. And the reason they did that, well, for one thing, they got the intellectual capital, right? These are the kids who had gone to the best schools and were raised up, so they were getting the best. So they're going to weaken the nation they leave behind, strengthen their own nation by taking them to work for them. Secondly, they made great hostages, right? In other words, you know, you rebel, we're going to kill your kids. So the nobles are not so supportive of resisting, right? You know, and on top of that, it was great to have these living trophies walking around your court. You know, you were the royal king and say, hey, you see all these people I conquered? You know, and, they, and that's what they were. They were walking trophies. And so, they, these three, so Daniel and his friends get swept up in all of this. So with that, I want to read chapter 1. Again, page 747 in your pew Bibles. So, so Daniel and his three friends, let's just say they're 8th and ninth graders, right? 14, 15 years old swept up in international currents, right? These guys, are the, these guys aren't even tadpoles in the ocean, right? They're just, and, and this is the experience that they have as we launch out in chapter one. So in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, remember he had taken over to, for Josiah, Nebuchadnezzar became the king of, uh, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. Well, after he had 
defeated the Assyrians at Carchemish while he was on his way down to Jerusalem. His father died, and he became the king. So he's no longer the prince. He's no longer the prince of Wales, but now he's actually the king, right? So, and he comes down. And the Lord handed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, over to him, along with some of the vessels from the house of God. Interesting note on this. I'm not going to do this all the way through our reading, but if you go back and you look at, at the book of Isaiah, chapter 39, there's a time in about 100 years earlier than this that Hezekiah had received an envoy from the Babylonians. He had been healed from a great sickness. They sent this, this kind of word, say, hey, we're so happy you're better, and they sent this gift kind of thing. He shows these envoys everything that he has, all of his treasury, all the treasury that's in the, the temple. He shows them everything. And, and Isaiah says to him, what have you done? He said, you know what? This time's going to come when everything that you've shown them is going to be in Babylon. A hundred years later, it takes place. A hundred years later. So Nebuchadnezzar carried them to the land of Babylon, to the house of his God, and put the vessels in the treasury of his God. So the king ordered Ashpenaz, another name you don't want to give to your kid. The, the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his court officials, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and from the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, good-looking, suitable for instruction in all wisdom, knowledgeable, perceptive, and capable of serving in the king's palace, and to teach them the Chaldean language and literature. So these are the guys, they're the top 1% of their high school class who ace their SATs, and, you know, and they can get in anywhere, and they're the ones who were taken back to Babylon. The king assigned them daily provisions from the royal food, and from the wine that he drank. They would be trained for three years, and at the end of that, um, that they were to serve in the king's court. So among them, these tadpoles in the currents of international tensions going on, from the descendants of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Some 14, 15-year-old kids. The chief official gave them different names. To Daniel, he gave the name Belshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. Verse 8, Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. So he asked permission from the chief official not to defile himself. God had granted Daniel favor and compassion from the chief official. Yet he said to Daniel, he said, My Lord, the, the, the king assigned your food and drink. I'm afraid of what would happen if your faces, if he saw your faces looking thinner than the other young men your age. You would endanger my life with the king. So his objection is, you know what, if, if I don't give you the food that's been prescribed and you guys look sickly, they're going to cut my head off. So I don't really like this plan, <laughs> right? So Daniel said to the guard whom the chief official had assigned to Daniel, to Hananiah, and to Mishael, and to Azariah, please test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then examine our appearance and the appearance of the young men and the appearance of the young, uh, young men who are eating the king's food and deal with your servants based on what you see. He agreed. So he agreed with them in this matter and tested them for ten days. Now at the end of ten days... They took, they took a, a, a selfie with everybody involved, no photoshopping. So at the end of the 10 days, they looked better and healthier than all the young men who were eating the king's food. 
So the guard continued to remove their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Now, before we go on with the story a little bit, just think about the dynamics. You're talking about 14, 15-year-old kids whose country has been squashed like a bug by an international power. They've been moved 900 miles from home. That's like moving from Boston to Savannah. And no access to their families. And these kids stand up and say, we don't really want to eat the food you're giving to us because of who, what we believe. You know, and and you've got to remember that in those days, the belief was that when you fought on the battlefield, the gods were fighting in the heavens. And if your nation won, that means your god was stronger than the other gods. So here they are with this kind of floating around, and they're the defeated country. So their god lost, quote-unquote, according to everybody else, and they're now in the other country, and they say, we don't really want to eat that food because it violates what God's told us to do. It's quite a thing. So God gave these four men knowledge and understanding and every kind of literature and wisdom. Daniel also understood visions and dreams of every kind. And at the end of the time that the king had said to present them, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king interviewed them, and among all of them, no one was found equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They began to serve in the king's court. In every matter of wisdom and understanding that the king consulted them, he found them to be ten times better. I don't know how they quantified it, but he, he, he found them to be ten times better than all the diviner priests and mediums in his entire kingdom. To be a wise person, to be whatever, you were a diviner or a priest, you were a medium. You know, somehow or another, God spoke to you and gave you the wisdom to do the things that you needed to do. And so Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. That's three kings later from the ones he's currently with. Now, their, their challenges of compromise weren't over with this story. A couple chapters later, chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar is going to get this bright idea planted by the servants around him that he should build this 90-foot-tall, 9-foot-wide gold statue and call it a god. And that it should be a national requirement that every single time you hear any piece of music come from any instrument, you have to bow down and worship the idol. And so he builds the idol, puts it up in the plane. Every single time somebody beats a drum, plays a flute, strums a guitar, hits the keyboard, plays, you know, iTunes on their phone or whatever, whatever. anytime they hear music, they bow down and worship this idol. Three, um, Hananiah and Mishael and, and, um, and Azariah, they, they refuse. And so many of you know the story. They're brought in. Nebuchadnezzar said, what's this I hear about you? You refuse to worship the idol that I put up. You refuse to worship me. You know, that kind of, and, and they just said, you know what? We're only going to worship God, and that's it. And he just gets furious. And so he says, you know, I don't care what the safety regulations say. I want that furnace seven times hotter than it's supposed to be. I want you to get the strongest guys in the army to come in and tie the knots on their hands and on their ankles tighter than anybody's ever tied them before. And I want those guys thrown into the furnace. And while those guys are being led up to the furnace to be pushed in, and, and you know, the, the, the king said, well, let's just see if your God can rescue you now. So you know what? Whether our God exists or not, and whether he chooses to rescue us or not from the fiery pit, from this furnace, we're not going to bow down and worship your idol. We're not going to defile ourselves. And so as they're being carried up and they get tossed 
into the furnace. The guys who were leading them up there, forcing them to go, they end up dying as collateral damage because it's so hot. And yet, while they're in the fiery furnace, Nebuchadnezzar sees not three guys, but four. And it's not because Daniel joined them, all right? You know, he wasn't taking a stroll. It was these three guys. And then God showed up to be with them. The compromising isn't over yet. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar dies. There's another king. He, he, he takes the, the spiritual vessels from the temple to use them for his own partying. God brings judgment on him. A new king arises by the name of Darius. And he's talked into... The guys know that the only way they're going to be able to bring Daniel down, because he's the most influential person in the kingdom, like Joseph under Pharaoh at the end of the book of Genesis, they know the only way they can bring him down is to do so in some, in some way or another related to the law of his God. So they say, you know what, king? It's this, you know, you're God. You should pass a law that for 30 days only, people can only pray to you. And Daniel refuses. Doesn't make a big scene out of it, but he goes back to his home opens the windows and prays every single day at the required times, not making a big deal out of it, but, that, but that's brought to the king's attention. And the king said, you know what? I wish I hadn't passed the law because I love Daniel. I don't want to lose him, but I can't go back on the law that I've written. That's the way, how our laws have stated. So you've got to go into the lion's den. And so they put him in at night. They roll the rocker in front, and Daniel spends the entire night in the lion's den comes morning. The king doesn't sleep at all. He's praying all night long. Doesn't really know who he's talking to, but he's trying to talk to some God to protect Daniel. Soon as the light comes up in the morning, soon as there's just a flicker of light in the sky, he's down. They open it up, and Daniel is able to come out unscathed. And the king says, well, bring the guys who talked me into that law. And they throw him, and before they even hit the bottom of the lion's pit, the lion's already ripping them apart. You know, over and over and over again, Daniel and his friends face this tremendous pressure to compromise. To say, you know what, I know what I've, I know what I've been taught. I know what I believe. I know, what I, I know what's right in God's eyes, but the question is, what am I going to do? And they found the power not to compromise. And, and I just want to offer you guys a few insights from their experience that I think are powerful for our experience, because we face this all the time. We face pressure to compromise all the time. You know, it, it, sometimes it, sh- it shows up in the most, uh, the most un- unlikely places. I remember shortly after coming back to New England um, from studying um, and getting my Master's of Divinity degree in Texas, I decided I'd take a few courses at the School of Theology at, the, at Boston University. It was a, a, a theological school sponsored by a Christian denomination. And I sat in this class. I was thinking about working towards a THD. And as soon as the boys were born and I had to learn French and German, I said, you know what? I ain't doing that. I'd rather coach baseball than doing French and German. So I never got another degree. And, and so that's why you have a dumb pastor, but that's the way it goes. And, um, but, you know, I sat in that class and here I was in a, in a seminary class talking about world missions. And the vast majority of people in the class were saying, why is it that we have to proclaim that, only, that Jesus is the only way to go to heaven? And there's tremendous pressure in intellectual environments sometimes to compromise in the fact that there's no other name under heaven given by which men must be saved. Today, you know, you have folks who say, well, you know, 
you've got to look beyond the Bible to really figure out what you really believe about God. And that happens all the time, right? You know, the, the, the pluralistic, and the list just goes on, whether it's related to our ethics, related to our dress code, our language, our priorities, our commitments, our values, the how we def, define success, everything, all that stuff. Where it's constant pressure for us to be, to compromise, right? To, to give couple examples, you know, these are from ministry experiences a long, long time ago. I had a friend of mine, he, he worked for a technology company, and he was the performance engineer. So once they built something, it was his job to, to test it to see if it actually met the specs that they were going to market to everybody else. Would it do what they said it would do in real time out in the, in, in when it was employed? And, and they had a product they invested a lot in, and it didn't quite meet the specs. And there was tremendous pressure on him to sign documentation that said it met all the specs, that his tests had actually proved something, but they hadn't, and he refused. He refused to sign his name on something that was, wasn't correct, was a lie, and he lost his job. Now, I call that pressure to compromise, right? It's interesting. It doesn't always happen this way, but in his particular case, about 10 days later, he got a call from this is like the senior vice president. You know, his boss had fired him, and there was a couple layers up. And, and they said, well, what happened? I mean, you were great. What, 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 how, how did this happen? He said, listen, he said, you know, I, they wanted me to sign something that wasn't true. They changed the numbers on the report, and it wasn't the right numbers, and I just wasn't going to sign something that wasn't true. And he said, I, I never, I, when, when did we stop saying that the best way to grow our company was to build customer loyal, loyalty by the fact that our product actually does what it says we were going to do? And he got his job back. Doesn't always happen that way. Another example: had a young couple who came to our area. We, we back then we were down close, not too far to the naval air station. He was a marine that came there. He had been very serious with a woman. They hadn't gotten married yet. The only way that they thought they could afford for them to stay together was for her to come with her son and to live with him, even though they weren't married. And in my first encounters with them, as they started visiting our church, we said, "We know this isn't right, but this is what we have to do now." Pressure to compromise, right? Sometimes that's self-imposed pressure. How, how do you and I deal with that? How does Daniel and his friends deal with it? Here they are, tadpoles in the international currents of what's going on in the world. And they're, and they're there to be developed as tools that can be used by this nation. And the first thing out of their mouth is, we don't like the food. Now, how do you do that? Now, let me give you just a few points. And We'll have to move fairly quickly, but I, I think really the points in some ways speak for themselves. But the, really, the first part is that you, you have to really purpose. You have to really aspire. You have to be committed to not compromising. You know, it has to be your goal. It has to be your aim. Look at verse 8 of chapter 1. Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with a king's food. You know, it, it can't be just like, well, you know, that'd be a good thing if I didn't do that. You know, hey, you know, be, be nicer. You know, maybe I'll do it in this area. You know, but it was his goal. It was his mission. It was his commitment. You know, and, and if it's not, if we have not drawn a line in the sand and say, I'm going to do this God's way, and that's not our purpose, that's not our intent, it's not the determination of our heart, you and I are somewhere along the line, we're going to find ourselves compromising in what we know is right in the eyes of God. It's just going to come. Part of that is, is those got to be your own convictions. Can't be somebody else's. Can't be Pastor Neil's. Can't be 
you know, Ken, Pastor Ken's. It can't be your parents. It can't be your grandparents. You know, Daniel lived up in a time when the city, the, the nation of Judah was going through tremendous spiritual revival. King Josiah was in clear news. Jeremiah's preaching. Habakkuk is preaching. You know, they got all these great prophets, etc. There's all this great stuff. When he gets 900 miles from home and he's all by himself with his few friends, it's not what they said. It's what he's come to own for himself. You know, we talk a lot about, you know, I think we grieve sometimes as we see, you know, kids, you know, kids grow up in our home, then they go off to college and they go out and, and the lifestyle they adopt is not the lifestyle that we think really is evident of faithfulness to God. And a lot of times it's because somewhere in the, the, the transition, what were the convictions of the household never really became their convictions. And there's a difference between what they believe is right and what they actually do. And there's a way in which you and I are never going to be people who can live without compromise if we aren't determined to do it and determined because they're our values. They're our convictions. They're not my parents. They're not what's going to make my wife happy or make my husband happy or this or that or whatever. It's what I believe is right in the eyes of God, and I have chosen and committed myself to actually living out that way. That's what Daniel and his friends had to do. There's also a way in which Daniel and his friends, and, and Daniel in particular here in chapter 1, is, is he was able to do this in a way where he, he did it with a sense of graciousness, with a sense of maturity. You, you know, I mean, somehow as he's talking to this guy who's in charge of him, right? And, he, and he's saying, you know, we don't, we, to eat the food is a violation of our spiritual conscience. We know that a lot of this meat's been offered to an idol. It hasn't been cooked the way that we believe it's supposed to be prepared. It was cooked with the blood in it and all these kinds of regulatory stuff out of the Old Testament and that kind of thing. We, we, we can't, if we eat that stuff, we're going to be defiled. But he's not doing this like, well, you pagans, you know, we can't eat your heathen food or, you know, with this judgmentalism with him. He's doing it with a sense of graciousness. And there's a way in which you and I, in order to, to, to be able to live out our, our faith in a way that doesn't draw, it's, there needs to be a graciousness about it. It's, it's not that we're superior, we just know what it means to be faithful. And there's an aspect in this where it really has to be about, it's God honoring. You know, it's not just about what I like. It's not just what's convenient for me. It's not my preference. It's not like, you know, you're saying, well, I, I like the taste of broccoli better than hamburgers, you know, and so therefore I want to be, it's not that kind of, but, but it's, it, the, he understands that this is what God has asked him to do and to live this way is God honoring, and he entrusts himself. He, he doesn't know how it's all going to go, but he entrusts himself. So you've got a purpose. You've got to have it as your aspiration. It's got to be your aim not to compromise. Secondly, you've got to have a plan. I think you have to have a plan. You know, now there certainly are times when simply no is no and yes is yes. I understand that. But for many of the ways for us not to compromise in the ongoing aspects of our lives, we have to have a plan. You know, Daniel just said, well, I can't eat your food. He said, well, just give us vegetables and water instead. There's a plan. When a guy objects to say, you know what, if you guys look sickly and everybody else looks healthy and I find out, they find out what I've allowed you guys to do, he said, how about just 10 days? <laughs> you know, he's got a plan. You know, some of us, as we walked through this transformation series we just did and we thought about 
the way we manage our money, whether we're giving what we're supposed to, or we're saving enough for the future, or we're investing what God has given us in a way that expands the kingdom and meets our family's needs and all that kind of stuff. A lot of us reach the conclusion, you know what? I'm not. But you're not going to be able to figure that out if you don't have a plan, right? It's not like you're just going to wave your Bible over your checkbook and everything's going to get fixed. You know, why well, I would probably say today it's more likely wave it over your laptop or your PC, right, because you'd pay everything online. It's just, you know, you have to have a plan. You know, and, and Daniel and these guys, they have a plan. You know, and when, when the moment comes, he knows what he's going to do. I, I got to tell you, this was powerful my own journey, you know, as a high school kid going off to hang out with my friends in the evenings. You know, I, I knew there was going to be temptations to drink, and I wasn't of age yet and really didn't know about what, how I, what place I wanted alcohol to have in my life anyway, spiritually, and that kind of stuff. And, 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 but when I went, I, I really never had thought through and made a firm commitment to say, this is what I'm going to do when the temptation comes. And I often felt. When I got to college, totally different story. I decided, you know what, this is a new time. And I knew exactly what I was going to say and how I was going to handle myself when those moments came. I had a plan. And I was able not to compromise. It, it, it's, it's a power. You have to, and got to know that somewhere along the line, you know you're going to involve self-denial. So you've got to have a plan not to compromise. You've got to have this alternative solution. You've got to have thought it through. And then you have to, you, you need to know that sometimes it's simply just saying, you know what, I know I'd like to do this, but I'm just not. I'm sure there were times sitting at the table, Daniel and his friends were looking over at the prime rib on the other guy's plate going, that might be nice, you know, but I'm just, I'm, anyways, just set that one aside, right? That speaks to me, it probably doesn't speak to you, but, you know, but it's nice to say, you know what, I'm just not going to eat it. Just not going to eat it, you know? I've been trying to lose weight this summer, not having a great deal of success. My form of self-denial is to tell my wife to get a medium ice cream cone instead of a small, and then I eat some of hers. So, you know, it's just to get, but you've got to have this plan, you know, kind of as you go along. The last component is, I don't care what you say, it's going to take faith. It's going to take a leap of faith. It's going to take trust in God. You know, we read the pages, and so we say, eh, you know, that was easy for those guys. Think of what it was like for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, because I always want to pronounce it Abednego. You know, I want to put the, switch the D and the N around. Think of what it was like for these guys when they're dragged in before Nebuchadnezzar, and he is just red in the face with rage, threatening them with, to be cooked alive in a furnace, and they're saying, we don't know if God's going to save us or not, but we're just not going to give in. Think about that. It takes faith in God, doesn't it? So, you know, we, we determine what's right in the eyes of God. This is what we're going to do. We don't know if God's going to save us or not. We could lose it all. We could lose our lives, but we're not. We're not going to give in. It takes an act of faith. It takes trust. It takes trust that in whatever works out, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, we know that what works out is actually best in the eyes of God. And that's difficult. For example, going back to this couple, right? He got transferred to the Marine, to the Naval Air Station. They were in love. They wanted to stay together. They, their thing was, you know, they didn't trust God that their relationship would survive a period of separation, but would still lead to marriage. They just have to trust God. If God's hand's in it, it's going to work out. You know, and, and, and you, it takes faith. It takes trust. None of this is easy. It's not like God gives us a, a guarantee 
that nothing unpleasant is ever going to happen to us if we commit ourselves to not compromising. It doesn't work that way. It takes an act of faith, and you can see it over and over again. So, as we come to kind of applying this to our own lives, I mean, I think it's a healthy thing for us to ask ourselves, well, where, where am I compromising on my spiritual journey? You heard some of our teens say just a moment ago, some of it's in there, just their personal walk with God. It's kind of like, all right, I did my five minutes. I'll put it down. I don't even remember what I read, but off I go. But I did my spiritual thing for today because I'm in a hurry, and there's a sense of compromise. Where, where are you compromising your spiritual journey? Service, sharing your faith, connecting with God's people. Just where, 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 where are the places where you're compromising today? I think it's important for us as well to think about what is it to really clearly know what it is that God is asking me to do in the context in which I'm facing those challenges. What does it mean for me to not compromise, to be God-honoring, and to be gracious in the midst of this? And what plan are we going to work and exercise to get there? Because none of this stuff happens by accident. It took determination on the part of Daniel. Just, and, and it took determination on the part of, of his three friends, Mishael and Hananiah and Azariah. It takes commitment. And so I'm asking you today to take some next steps. Just figure out what your next steps has to be spiritually. For some of you, it's, you know, I my, really my, sort of, you know, I've kind of believed in God. I, I, you know, I kind of believe in the church. I, th- I think the Bible's got some good things in it, whatever. But you've never, ever got to a place where you said, you know what, I'm going to turn away from a life of sin, and I'm going to turn to become a follower of Christ. And some of us, that, that's the first step we've got to take today, is to make that choice. For others of us, it's, you know, we're in a place where we've been kind of holding back. Happens in the area of baptism. Well, you know, this church teaches this, this church, that, that kind of stuff. I don't know, and I don't really like to be up in front and people to see me and that kind of stuff. So, I, I, I you know, some of us, the, the next step is, to we, I, you know what, I need to figure out for myself, what does the Bible teach about baptism? How do I identify with Christ in baptism? And maybe I need to be baptized. Others of you, you've been hanging back, say, you know, I love going to church and people only know my first name. They don't know my address and they can't email me, et cetera. I've been trying to keep my distance, that kind of stuff. And, and, and it's a place where you need to say, you know what, I, I, I need to connect. I need to be open to getting engaged with a life group. Maybe I'll come to the, the, to the Bible 101 class this summer and meet some people and get going and or become a ministry partner, settle down, those kind of things. But there's many, many ways in which we just compromise. We just let things kind of slide. And God is calling us in the spirit of faith to stand up, not to be obnoxious, but to experience faithfulness as we're faithful. Let's pray together for just a minute. God, I'm tremendously aware in these moments as one who stands as the recipient of this message as much as the one who offers it to others. A lot of this stuff is a lot easier said than done. So we need your spirit. That's why you gave us the Holy Spirit, to be that power within us to do the things that we can't do ourselves. God, gives us, give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts that are willing to follow as you seek to empower us through the Holy Spirit.
be people of, to be people of faithfulness. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.